Okay, so recap. Story Vesta, you haven't been here for it. Do you know the Story Vesta? Okay. So we're in chapter seven. We're almost actually getting near the end, though we left it on like another cliffhanger because the whole second half of the book is pretty much just cliffhangery. We're in the Persian Empire, like 400, 500 years before Jesus. There's a king called Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, depending on the translation you're using. He's king of Persia, this huge, huge empire. And something happens. Well, uh, details. He loses his wife. He banishes his wife, his queen, Vashti. And he needs a new one. And the queen he chooses to replace Vashti is Esther, who is Jewish, but... Does he know she's Jewish? No. no, nobody knows she's Jewish. Her older cousin, Mordecai, is her caregiver. She's an orphan. She lost her parents when she was young, and so her cousin has been raising her. He's also Jewish, knows that she's Jewish, tells her, don't tell anybody else that you're Jewish. Then, there's a man called Haman. Haman. There's something when, like, traditionally when, when Jewish people read the story of Esther, this, I can't remember now what it is. They do something every time the word, every, every time the name Haman is read. Like they stamp their feet or spit or something. I can't remember. Uh, I, no, I don't think they spit. I can't remember. There was some, there was something they had, they, they do. Anyway, that's, or anyway, yeah. So there's this guy called Haman, arrogant, proud man. And he gets basically made prime minister, second only to the king, kind of. And everybody has to bow to him to show respect. But Mordecai is not, doesn't want to bow to him. Doesn't respect Haman. Because Haman doesn't seem to be a particularly respectable kind of person. And so Haman gets really angry. And he decides he's going to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. There's a long history. Because remember, and we, we might look well touch on that. Well, I could touch on it now. Haman is descended from a king that fought with the Israelites back hundreds of years earlier. And his family line and the Jews have been enemies ever since. So he hated the Jews before Mordecai refused to bow to him. Uh, and now he just has, a, I guess, an excuse to do something about it. And so he goes to King Xerxes and asks permission to write a decree that in a year's time, in, in, well, in 11 months' time, on a particular day, on the 13th day of the month, it is basically open season. You can kill any Jews you find and take their property. And so that's what was signed into law. Then, Mordecai finds out and he tells his cousin Esther, who's queen in Persia, you need to go and see the king and beg for our lives. And Esther says, I can't do that. If I go to the king without being invited, I could lose my life. And he says, you've got nothing to lose. Like, we're all going to die unless you do this. You need to go and speak to the king. And so eventually she says, okay, I'll go speak to the king. But when she goes to speak to the king, what does she say? Yeah, come have dinner with me. I'll tell you then and bring Haman with you. And so they, Haman and the king come have dinner with Esther. And at the end... He says, the king's like, what are we doing here? 
And she says, come again tomorrow. Come have dinner again with me tomorrow. Then I'll tell you what this is all about. And so she's like, okay, fine. Haman, on his way back home, after having dinner with the king and with the queen, is all in a good mood, happy. And then he sees Mordecai. And he's, it infuriates him. And he goes home, gathers up all of his friends, tells them how great he is, how great his life is. But he says, none of that satisfies me as long as I have to look at that Mordecai. And so his friends and his family tell him, yeah, impale him. Tomorrow morning, go to the king, ask the king for permission to execute Mordecai. And then you can go to this banquet with the queen and enjoy it because Mordecai is dead. And so he's like, that's a good idea. Then that night, the king can't sleep. So he asked somebody to come and read a really boring book to him so that he can go to sleep. And the boring book is just the history, stuff that's happened in his kingdom. And so they open the book and they happen to open to a story about Mordecai saving the king's life, which happened earlier on, chapter 2, I think. And so then the king says, well, how did I reward Mordecai for saving my life? And he's told... You didn't reward Mordecai. You didn't do anything for him. So he's like, okay, well, I need to do something for him. Just at that moment, Haman arrives early in the morning. Why is Haman there? He wants to execute Mordecai. The king says to Haman, what should I do for somebody? Before Haman has an opportunity to say anything, the king says, what should I do for somebody that I want to honor? And Haman thinks, He must be talking about me. Who would the king want to honor more than me? And so he says, I think you should dress him in, you should have an important official, dress him in your own clothes, put him on your own horse and ride him through the city saying, this is a man the king wants to honor. And so the king says, good, great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. (laughs) So yeah, you can imagine the shame And so then that happens. He goes, walks Mordecai around the streets on the king's horse and then runs home with his head covered in shame and mourning. And when he gets there, his friends are all at home waiting to to see Mordecai executed. And they're like, what happened? And he told them what had happened. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh, you're in trouble, right? Because they're very superstitious, the Persians. And they can see there's something... This is not looking good for you. You were supposed to have Mordecai killed, and instead you had to walk him around the streets saying, this is somebody the king wants to honor. You're in trouble. They say if he is actually Jewish, this isn't going to end well for you. Right at that moment, the king's servants arrive to fetch Mordecai, uh, fetch Haman to come to dinner with Queen Esther. And that was the end of chapter 6. We're now... Then we started chapter 7. This is what we looked at. So the king and Haman came to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again asked Esther, What is your request, Queen Esther? It will be granted to you. And what is your petition? Ask for up to half the kingdom and it shall be done. And so again, the king's like, What do you want? Why are we here? And the queen says, If I have met with your approval, O king, And if the king is so inclined, grant me my life as my request 
and my people as my petition. For we have been sold, both I and my people, to destruction and to slaughter and to annihilation. If we had simply been sold as male and female slaves, I would have remained silent for such distress would not have been sufficient for troubling the king. And so we talked about a couple of things here. The one thing we talked about is like the idea of intercession, pleading, like getting in between of people and pleading for somebody, pleading on behalf of somebody. And that you can kind of do that from a distance. This, that person over there is in trouble. Please help them. And Esther could have done that. She could have like hidden her identity, just said, there's this people in your kingdom, the Jews, and they're being treated very unfairly. Please help them. Or there's like the real intercession. Yeah. Whereas where you become a part of the problem, you tie yourself to them basically. And whatever happens to them is what's going to happen to you. Kind of, kind of. And that's what she does here. She doesn't say there's the Jewish people, grant them their lives. She says, grant me my life. Because if you don't save the Jewish people, I'm going to die, right? She makes herself a part of the problem. What was the significance of that? Do you remember? Of that all-in intercession. Yes, you, yes, exactly. You are putting, and, and I'm not sure that if she had just left it out in the distance there, whether the king would have responded the same way, right? Making herself a part of the problem, I think, is part of, like, that's, yeah, much more intense, right? And much more, like, everything's on the line kind of thing, like desperate intercession, desperate pleading. But who is she a picture of in that? Yeah, it's Jesus, right? Jesus didn't save us from a distance, if that were possible. I'm not sure it was possible. Jesus chose to become one of us, to become man, in order to intercede for us. It's pretty cool. So, this is kind of a picture of that. And then the other thing we talked about is the power of your words. Like, Esther, in the way that she responds to the king here, shows a tremendous amount of wisdom and grace and humility. Grant me my life is my request, my people is my petition. She says, if, if we'd only been sold as slaves, I wouldn't have worried you. It's, but, but it's far, far worse than that, right? And I had a thought, we had, um, we had a worship night after this, and during the worship night, I had this thought that like, so we said, Matthew 15, Jesus says that what defiles a person is not what goes into the mouth, it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Do you remember that? What was he, what's the point? What was he saying? It's not rather what you speak that defiles you, but what you say. So it's the thing, why are the things that you say, why do the things that you say defile you? Yeah. He says the way that you speak is a reflection of your heart. You eat, you go to the toilet. Doesn't become a part of you. But the words that you speak, that's your heart, right? So your words are a reflection of your heart. And we looked at this proverb, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love its use will eat its fruit. 
What does that mean? If you use your words for good, what will the result be? What does it say? Life, right? Or, well, yeah. The, the, the words that you use have the power of life and death. They can re- lead to life in people or lead to death. And you can look at that in all different sort of degrees, right? Are you building people up? Are you tearing them down? The fruit is both ways. You have good fruit or bad fruit, life or death. Um, and it's just determined by the words you use. Now, I had this thought that like, what is one of the titles of Jesus? Another title that might be relevant to this. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. Ah, that's actually not the verse I wanted to put in there. It's one fourteen, where it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So who's the Word? Jesus, right? That's God made, made man. And he's described as the Word, the Word of God. In Revelation, we looked at this last year when we were doing the prophetic overview, and we looked at like Armageddon, Jesus comes back, this is the passage. Then I saw heaven opened, and here came a white horse. The one riding it was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadem crowns on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is dressed in clothing dipped in blood, and he is called the... The word of God. Now, if your if your words are a reflection of your heart, what does that make Jesus? Yeah. Jesus, in his very essence, is a reflection of God's heart, which is kind of cool. Well, this isn't. What is this? What is it? The word of God. What is this then? Well, and and it's a reflection of God's heart, right? Like if you want to know God's heart, that's where you find it out, in his word. Because your word is a reflection of your heart, yeah? It's kind of cool. And what does Jesus' words bring? Life, yeah. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there's this... There's this awesome passage where Jesus preaches to heaps of people and they don't really like what he says and they leave. And then he says to his disciples, after many of his disciples quit following him and did not accompany him any longer, he said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where would we go? To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So I just thought that was kind of cool, like how these things dovetail, come together. Your words are a reflection of your heart. Jesus is a reflection of God's heart. And your words have the power of life and death. Jesus' words. He is 
life and dip, yeah? Okay, so that's what we got up to. She's made the request now. We've been waiting many chapters, two and a half chapters, for Esther to finally get the courage to say what she needs to say. My people, the Jewish people are in trouble. We need you to save us. Okay. And I said, I don't know if Haman knows what's happening yet, if he's put two and two together, because she hasn't technically said she's Jewish. But I can imagine his brain starting to think, like, who, what is she talking about? <laughs> so, let's see what she says. Who wants to read? Verses 5 and 6. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The ad adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So whether or not Haman had figured this out yet, the king obviously hadn't. And so he's like, who would, who would, who would be arrogant enough to, to plot to kill my queen? Yeah, but he didn't know it was his queen. And he didn't really know what Haman had planned. He just said, yeah, do whatever you want with those rebellious people that apparently are in my kingdom. But yeah, so he's like, who is this? Who would be presumptuous enough? Who would be arrogant enough to act that way? To plot to kill my queen? And if Esther was cautious before, not anymore. She's like, there he is. <laughs> you can imagine Haman's face, right? In that moment. Now she didn't say there he is. She called Haman. Oh, where were we? She called Haman, this evil Haman. The word is ra. Means evil or wicked. Uh, this is the same word that's used in the name of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the word, Ra. And interestingly, according to Blue Letter Bible, Strong's Concordance, that word is used 666 times in the Bible. I haven't checked that because I didn't have the time, but apparently, okay. So he says, this evil Haman, the oppressor and the enemy. The word translated enemy is exactly right. It's ayav, and it, it, it means the enemy. You're the, uh, what? Somebody who, is, who hates and is hostile towards somebody else. The word translated oppressor we've actually seen before. It's tsarar. It was used back in, I don't know if I have that actually, in Esther 3. Oh yeah, Esther 3. So the king took his signet ring from his enemy, from his finger and gave it to Haman, son, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And very often this word tsarar is translated enemy in this passage. But that's not really quite right. Like what that word really means is to bind up and to compress. And so I think oppressor is a much better translation of that. You can imagine somebody basically like pushing down, squashing somebody, right? That's what Haman was to the Jewish people. He was the oppressor and the enemy. Now, if you remember Mordecai, when he was speaking to Esther, 
He said that whatever Esther does, relief and deliverance will come from somewhere. The Jews are going to be saved. God's going to save them regardless what you do, but your future depends on what you do. And we said that the word there that's translated relief, ravach, means to breathe freely. And I kind of like that because you have Haman who's described again and again and again as this oppressor, as the suffocator of the Jews. But Mordecai says we'll be able to breathe again, right? Now, Esther has now pointed out it's Haman. He's the problem. She doesn't know how he's going to respond, right? When, she, when Xerxes realizes that the problem is his closest advisor. But apparently neither does Haman, and so he is terrified. But I think it's, it's interesting that he's terrified not just of the king. At this point, he's also terrified of the, the queen. And to understand that, I think you have to remember like what's just happened this morning, Right? He's, just this morning, Haman had planned to get Mordecai executed and he'd ended up having to walk him around the city on the horse. And he'd then gone home and his friends had told him, you're screwed if, if he's actually Jewish. So Haman is already scared of Mordecai because he is Jewish. And now he discovers the queen is Jewish too. So I'd say like the signs, the omens, if you like, are getting pretty clear now for Haman, right? He's in trouble. Okay, verse 7. Who wants to read that? Enraged, the king arose from the banquet of wine and withdrew to the palace garden. Meanwhile, Haman stood to beg Queen Esther for his life, for he realized that the king had now determined a, ca- a catastrophic end for him. So the king gets up, storms out, out to the garden. Uh, furious, probably not just at Haman, probably a little bit angry at himself for having been deceived so easily by Haman. And so yeah, he storms out to the garden to like get control of himself or throw stuff around, I don't really know. Haman can see he's in big trouble, right? That He's, that this is going to end in catastrophe. The word for, that's translated catastrophe is ra, which is kind of cool as well. So this evil Haman can see that evil is in store for him. So it's, yeah, some nice irony. And the other, other, other irony is that like he then gets up and starts begging Esther for his life. Who was doing the begging like three verses ago? Um, because of who? Haman, yeah. And now Haman's the one doing the begging, begging Esther. How the turntables. So here's a question. Haman begs Esther for mercy. Should Esther show him mercy? You think she should show him mercy, well, okay. and you say no. 
I have no idea what the answer to that question is. You think you think she was thinking about it? Yeah, I think in this case, ultimately, it doesn't really matter because it wasn't really up to her. But it, yeah, it's an interesting question to me. I don't know. I know that for us, we've been told, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your heavenly father will not forgive you. Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times must I forgive my brother who sinned against me? You guys might have that question. Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, 77 times. So there's a point. <laughs> there isn't. Don't start counting to 77. The, it, it's, an, it's, it's supposed to be an exaggeration. It's just like infinite. Seven is complete as well. So anyway, but yeah, he's just like, no, there's no limit to how many times you have to forgive your brother. As many times as they sin against you, you need to forgive them. And in Luke 6, Jesus says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be the measure you receive. And so for us, like, Jesus is actually very, very clear that... That God has forgiven us all the sins that we've committed against Him. And so He expects us to forgive how many? <laughs> Anything, right? Anything and everything, yeah. Yeah. We're not... So, I, at the same time, I don't think we're supposed to be naive and to just keep going back to get her some more, though there is the, like, turn the other cheek thing, get hit on the other side. Um, yeah, I mean, you can learn, you can learn, th learn from things, from experiences, and try not to maybe suffer that way again, but... What is very clear is that we are not supposed to hold resentment against people, whatever they do to us. And, and that kind of looks like wanting bad for them. <laughs> More than that, we're told to love our enemies. And at the very least, love is wanting good for them and praying for good for them and it's hard to want good for somebody and to pray 
for good for somebody that you resent. No, if you resent them, if you're angry with them, if you haven't forgiven them. So it's kind of a good measure of where you're at, you know? And it's also a good antidote. If you're feeling resentful to somebody, start praying for them. Because you might just find that some of that resentment starts to go away. But anyway, that's us. I'm not here to judge Esther. I don't know what the right thing to do in her situation is. Uh, and like I said, it doesn't really matter because it's not really up to her. It's up to the king. So, next verses. Does anybody else want to read? Verse 8. Just 8. Just 8. Uh, when the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet of wine, Haman was throwing himself down on the couch where Esther was lying. The king exclaimed, Will he ever assault the queen while I am in the house? Yes. It's kind of funny. The king comes back, finds Haman on the couch with his wife. And so he essentially accuses Haman of trying to take advantage of his wife. Which is funny because given the circumstances, there's absolutely no way that's what's going on. So either the king is completely blind with rage or is intentionally misconstruing Haman's actions here. But regardless, it's clearly over for Haman. And so it says... As these words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Indeed, there is the gallows that Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke out on the king's behalf. It stands near Haman's house and is 75 feet high. Sorry, I can't see. <laughs> the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. The king's rage then abated. <laughs> So the guards could obviously read the room, and so the king hadn't even finished speaking yet, and they'd covered up Haman's head, and you're like, you're now under the sentence of death, yeah. And this is obviously the second time that Haman's head's been covered in not long. I suspect that the first time is like a foreshadowing of this, this one. Anyway, so they cover, cover Haman's head. And then Harbona, one of the chief's eunuchs, this is actually one of the seven eunuchs that the king had sent to get Vashti back in chapter one. He pipes up and he's like, Your Honor, there's actually an impaling pole in Haman's backyard that's not being used. <laughs> he had it set up for Mordecai. You know, like that guy who saved your life. Yeah. And so the king's like, good, go hang him on it. Now, we said this at the end of chapter 6, but I, I don't believe that either Esther or Mordecai had any idea what was going on with Haman and the impaling, the gallows. Um, I suspect that this harbona being, there is the gallows that Haman made for Mordecai, that's probably the first time Esther even, like, 
you know? She's like, wait, what? What gallows? Gallows for Mordecai? I had no, she had no idea about this, right? Which is actually really cool because Esther's there all stressed and worrying about this problem that's 11 months away. Or I think at this stage, it might be closer to eight and a half months. And like, how's God going to save them? Turns out there was actually a way more urgent problem. It was Haman's plans to kill Mordecai that morning, right? That she didn't even know existed. And it turns out that problem's already been taken care of, right? God sorted that problem out. He solved it before she even knew that she needed to worry about it, which is really cool. Because what does that tell her? Say about the other problem that she's worried about. Yeah, well, she doesn't really need to be worrying about it so much, right? God could fix this problem that she didn't even know she had. Like, he can fix that problem too, you know? Don't stress so much about it. And again, I think that that is one of, or perhaps, well, it's one of the big lessons that the book of Esther is written and constructed to communicate to us, is this idea that, like, God is in control, in your life and in everybody else's life, even in the things that you, even in the problems you don't know exist, God is in control. And even when you don't see him, he's in control. Yeah? And so what does that mean for us? If God's in control of your life, even the things that you don't know that you need to pray about. What do you not need to do? Yeah, stress and worry. As Paul says to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything. Easier said than done. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's, that's it. There are things that you're stressed about. There are things you don't even know that you should be stressed about. God's got it. Pray about it. Submit it to Him. And then know it's not your problem anymore. Just stop worrying about it. Just trust Him. So, they hanged Haman on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. This is another principle that we see throughout the Bible. Certainly in Proverbs. And I sort of get the sense that the story of Esther is almost like an illustration of half the book of Proverbs. Because we seem to be spending a lot of time there. A righteous person was delivered out of trouble. Then a wicked person took his place. <laughs> That's pretty much, <laughs> if you had to describe the story of Esther in a sentence, that would be a good sentence. Mordecai was delivered out of trouble and Haman took his place. A couple of verses earlier, it says, The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the deceitfulness, that, but the deceitful 
will be ensnared by their own mischief. Again, pretty accurate. Proverbs 26. Whoever digs a pit, that's to trap somebody else, will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone will have it rolled back on him. In both those cases, the idea is you're trying to like roll a stone over a cliff to fall on somebody. And on your way up there, it's going to roll back and crush you. And you're digging a hole for people to fall into, but you're the one who's going to fall into your own hole. Warnings, right? David says exactly the same thing in the Psalms. He says, see the one who is pregnant with wickedness, who conceives destructive plans and gives birth to harmful lies. Yeah. <laughs> he digs a pit and then falls into the hole he has made. He becomes the victim of his own destructive plans and the violence he intended for others falls on his own head. So it's the same thing. And we have examples all through scripture of this. You have Jacob. Jacob kills an animal and then goes and lies to his father pretending to be Esau. Yeah? Familiar story? Years later, Jacob's sons kill an animal and then come and lie to him. Tell them Joseph's dead. Pharaoh tries to drown all the Jewish boys in the Nile River, years later has his entire army drowned in the Red Sea. Saul is there giving approval when they're stoning Stephen, and if you know the rest of Saul's life, he found himself, or Paul then, found himself stoned as well, although he didn't die, which is cool. Um, and then probably the ultimate example is Satan, after much plotting, he manages to kill the Messiah. Victory. I'm back. <laughs> yeah, turns out the death of Jesus was ex yeah, exactly, exactly as planned. That that was that that Jesus' death, rather than being Satan's victory, was Satan's defeat. And so you have Galatians 6, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And probably you can ask yourself, in your life, in the things that you're doing, what are you sowing? Because apparently we reap what we sow. But anyway, Haman, this evil Haman, the oppressor and enemy of the Jews, having sown much hatred and violence, has ultimately met his end. He's been defeated. So, problem solved. No, because the decree is Yeah, not quite. There's still that law that this whole thing was supposed to be about. And that's why we still have a couple of chapters left, why it's not the end of the story. So, we can move on to chapter 8. We'll see how far we get. Where are we? How fast? Almost. Okay. Who wants to read verses 1 and 2? On that same day, King Ahasuerus gave the estate of Haman, the adversary of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Now Mordecai had come before the king 
for Esther had revealed how he was related to her. The king then removed his signet ring, the, the very one he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther designated Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's estate. Cool. So I had wondered, like, as we were going through the book of Esther, like, who did know whether, who knew that Esther was Jewish? Because, like, you had Mordecai back in chapter 2, day after day, walking back and forth in front of the court to try to find out what's happening with Esther, right? How Esther's going. And, like, did they, was it obvious? Like, was he asking, hey, do you know what's happening with Esther? Or is it like he's just hanging around trying to pick up overhear conversations and stuff and like you know how obvious was it did everybody know that mordecai the jew was there for esther and then later on in that same chapter when mordecai finds out about that conspiracy to kill xerxes he goes and tells esther and esther goes and tells the king in the name of mordecai and so again did she make it obvious like how why mordecai told her because we're related I wasn't sure, but it turns out no, because the king apparently had no idea until now that Mordecai and Esther were related to each other. Servants maybe was a different story. I think they sometimes knew more than the king did about what's going on, but, but uh, the king and I suspect Haman had no idea that Esther and Mordecai were related. And so now he not only learns that his queen is actually Jewish, he also re- learns that he's related by marriage to Mordecai, the guy who'd saved his life. And then he gives Haman's house, estate, I think just everything that went along with that, to Esther. And I kind of get the sense that he basically said to Esther, you can like do whatever you want with this stuff. And so Esther says, okay, and she gives it to Mordecai, or at least puts Mordecai in charge of it. And so again, you have these tables that are turned. Haman set up this whole plan, part of which involved confiscating Mordecai's belongings, but now Haman's belongings get confiscated and given to Mordecai. So you have another proverb. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And so all that Haman had that he was very proud of has been taken away from him and from his children and given to Mordecai. And it's not just Haman's property that's given to Mordecai. It's also his position in the kingdom and his authority, the things that he valued the most. It says that the king took the signet ring, the very one that he had given to Haman, but had obviously taken back before Haman had been taken off to be executed. He gave that ring to Mordecai. And so again, you have this like continual, this continued reversal of fortunes. Everything a few chapters ago seemed to be going Haman's way and against Mordecai, but now it's all being turned around. Oh yeah, I was going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so you have this reversal. You have a few chapters ago, everything's going Haman's way. Everything's going against Mordecai, and now it starts to turn. And it started to turn the moment that Haman had to dress Mordecai in the king's clothes, right? That was really the turning point. And now everything's flowing in the other direction. Back then, 
Haman, Mordecai could easily have been like justified in being like, where is the justice? What's the point in being righteous, in trying to do the right thing, in trying to be on, honor God and worship God and pray to God? What's the point if I just suffer and people like Haman get everything? And we looked at that Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. He says, take a good look. This is what the wicked are like. Those who always have it so easy and get richer and richer. I concluded, surely in vain I have kept my motives and pure and maintained a pure lifestyle. What's the point? Why am I bothering? Because everything, they get everything good. But as we said, when we looked at that, that's, it only appears that way when you're judging in a moment. When you're judging your life, your situation here in this moment of time to somebody else's situation in this moment of time. Yeah? And then it can look like these things aren't fair. But God doesn't really care what things look like in this moment of time to you. Right? He's got a much bigger picture than that. And God's promise to us and what He is concerned about is that in the end, justice will prevail. We used to always say that when we were playing handball, I think. And it was somebody would say it was in, and I was sure it was out. And it's like, the truth will prevail. No? If you win the next point, it's like, see, you should have lost the last one. Anyway. God's promise is that in the end, justice will be done. Asaph, a couple of Psalms later, says that. He says, I say to the proud, don't be proud. And to the wicked, don't be so confident of victory. Don't be so certain that you've won. Do not speak with your head held so high, for victory doesn't come from the east or the west or from the wilderness. It's not in your control, right? It's not an earthly thing. God is the judge. He brings one down and he exalts another. If you're elevated, if you're Haman, you've been put in power, don't think that's you, right? God's put you there. And he can just as easily put you down. For the Lord holds in his hand a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. Cup of wine is uh, symbolic in the, in the Bible of judgment and wrath. And it gets poured out. And surely all the wicked of the earth will slurp it up and drink it to its very last drop. You're proud, you're wicked, things seem to be going well for you. Don't be so sure. Don't be so confident. In the end, God's judgment is going to come and you're going to drink it. That's what he's saying. As for me, I will continually tell what you, God, have done. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. God says, I will bring down all the power of the wicked. The godly will be victorious. That's the promise that God makes to us. What is assumed in this sentence, I will bring down all the power of the wicked. In order for God to bring them down, they need to be up, right? So this tells us, like, don't be surprised if you see wicked people in high places. Otherwise, this sentence wouldn't make any sense, right? It's exactly that situation that it's addressing. God will bring them down. The godly will be victorious. 
And so again, however things look to you now, you will be victorious if you're godly, if you follow God. You, there will be justice and it will all be worth it in the end. Jesus makes the same point in what are called the Beatitudes. So a Latin word for the blessed, blessings or blessedness. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began teaching them by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. So, who does Jesus say is going to be blessed? Or who are blessed. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? No? No? What's high spirits? Happy. You're in high spirits, you've got lots of good, happy spirit, like high spirits, you're happy. What, does it mean, what do you think it means to be poor in spirit? Sad, right? Yeah. Blessed are the sad. Blessed are those who mourn. What does it mean to mourn? Pretty much same thing, right? You've often, yeah, pain, suffering, you're in mourning. Blessed are the meek. That's not the big powerful ones who have, all, yeah, who have all the power, right? These are the ones who are lower. Those who are merciful. Those who are pure in heart. Those who are persecuted. Insulted. Do they sound blessed? No, I can kind of imagine the disciples being like, what are you talking about? I've seen those people. They don't look blessed. Their lives look terrible, right? What are you talking about? But that's the point. Things aren't as they appear. It looks that way now. But when you're looking at it from God's perspective, and He knows what the outcome is going to be, He knows how the story ends. He knows that justice will be done and that those who have suffered for his sake, are going to be rewarded beyond our wildest imaginations. From his perspective, they're way more blessed than the ones who have everything in this life and are going to have nothing in the next. No? So, things don't seem to be going well in your life. Be patient. What's that word? from junior leaders? Endure. Endure. 
Don't give up. <laughs> Don't give up even when things are hard. Trust God to keep His promises. And His promises that it will be worth it in the end. Okay. I think we might stop there. And pick up verse 3 when we get back. What has she just said? Oh, she's just been put in charge. Okay. Let's pray. Would you guys have any questions, comments, things that are interesting? Okay, let's pray. You can talk afterwards if you want. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of your scriptures, Lord, the, the word of God that reveals the heart of God. I thank you for the privilege it is to know you and to know your word and to, to be able to see those glimpses, to get some sense of your heart. And I ask that you would fill us with courage and with hope and with faith and that you would help us to trust trust your promises lord that when things things maybe aren't looking good and we don't see how this works out or how this yeah how this works out lord to trust that you are in control of our lives control of everything that's happening even the things we're not aware of lord and that in the end you will bring you will make all things beautiful in your time and that uh, even when we're sad and mourning, Lord, that let us know that we are blessed and that you will reward us and you'll make it all worth it in the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.